And we're turning to God's Word, Matthew chapter 12. Matthew chapter 12. And we've had several, uh, several messages from this uh, chapter. The Lord has been teaching. The Lord has been revealing the hearts of men. He's been showing truth uh, in the light of error. And we come once again to man thinking he knows better than God. And the Lord revealing the heart of man for what it truly is. And we commence our reading. Verse number 38. Let's hear the word of the Lord. Then certain of the scribes and of the Pharisees answered, saying, Master, we would see a sign from thee. But he answered and said unto them, An evil and adulterous generation seeketh after a sign. And there shall be no sign given to it but the sign of the prophet Jonas. For as Jonas was three days and three nights in the whale's belly, so shall the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh shall rise in judgment with this generation and shall condemn it. Because they repented at the preaching of Jonas, and behold, a greater than Jonas is here. The queen of the south shall rise up in the judgment with this generation and shall condemn it. For she came from the uttermost parts of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, a greater than Solomon is here. When the unclean spirit has gone out of a man, he walketh through dry places seeking rest and findeth none. Then he saith, I will return into my house from whence I came out. And when he has come, he findeth it empty, swept and garnished. Then goeth he and taketh with himself seven other spirits more wicked than himself. And they enter in and dwell there. And the last state of that man is worse than the first. Even so shall it be unto this wicked generation. And while he yet talked to the people, behold, his mother and his brethren stood without desiring to speak with him. Then one said unto him, Behold, thy mother and thy brethren stand without desiring to speak to thee. But he answered and said unto them, that told him, Who is my mother, and who are my brethren? And he stretched forth his hand toward his disciples, and said, Behold, my mother and my brethren. For whosoever shall do the will of my Father, which is in heaven, the same is my brother and sister and mother. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank thee for the reading of thy word. We rejoice that we have come today to the words of Christ, and we want to hear his word to our hearts. We ask you, Lord, that you'll take away all distractions, Pray, Lord, you'll take away a wandering mind, an unsettled heart. We just pray, Lord, that we will listen carefully to hear what the Spirit of God would say to our hearts. Lord, we realize as we come to a meeting such as this, yes, there needs to be a word for everyone, but Lord, there needs to be a word for me. And Lord, each of us individually need thy voice to speak to us, saying, this is the way, walk ye in it. And therefore, Lord, we pray that we will leave this house not only having heard the personal word of God, but having been obedient to it. Oh, Lord, minister to hearts today, we pray. And if there's one unsaved in this gathering, we pray that, Lord, you, they will come by faith to the Savior, the only one who can save. And they will not be uh, as the Pharisees and the scribes, thinking they know better, but that they will surrender to the will and the ways of God. Empty me of self and sin, I pray, and fill me with thy spirit. Give me help in the declaration of thy truth, for it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen and amen. We would see a sign from the... That was the request 
of the Pharisees and the scribes, having been rebuked by the Lord, having been told they were a generation of vipers, having the evilness and the wickedness of their heart exposed, they had the boldness to say to Christ, prove yourself. That's what they were saying. We would see a sign from thee, something astronomical, something out of the ordinary. You know, they had many signs that God had already given. Creation is a sign that there is a God. We read of that in the, the book of Psalm, Psalm 19. The heavens declare the glory of the Lord, and the earth showeth forth his handiwork. Day unto day utter speech, and night unto night showeth forth knowledge. There is no language nor speech where their voice is not heard. So the very fact there is creation around us declares that there is a God. They also have the scriptures of the Old Testament. And Christ is in the scriptures of the Old Testament. He is in prophecy. He is in type. He actually is there in appearance in a pre several pre-incarnate appearances of the Savior. But they also had Christ standing in front of them. The fulfillment of the Old Testament, the one promise of God, doing miracles that nobody else could do. And maybe you've heard people like the Pharisees, and they've said something like this, if only I could see a sign that God was real. But that is the argument of the soul that is blinded by sin. Never be tempted as a Christian to say, if only God would do some great thing, then the people will turn to him. The reality is, people will only turn to the Lord when their hearts are opened. Do you remember in Luke 16, the rich man in hell made a request? And the request was that Lazarus will be sent back from death into the world to warn this rich man's family about their need to repent from their sin and to be ready to die. What did Abraham say? He said, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. What's Moses and the prophets? That's a description of the Old Testament. Moses, the author of the first five books and then the prophetical books uh, following, he's saying, they've got the Old Testament, they've got the scriptures. Let them hear the scriptures. And this man said, Nay, Father Abraham, but if one of them went from the dead, they will repent. Oh, if some great sign happened, people will repent. And Abraham said, If they hear not Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one rose from the dead. And do you know how we can prove that? Because there were many in the day of Christ who died and rose from the dead. They didn't repent. Lazarus rose from the dead, but many people in Israel didn't repent. So we need to be careful that we don't get into this idea that God needs to do more, God needs to do better for people to repent from their sin. What was Abraham saying? Signs don't work. It's the heart of man that needs to be opened. They have the Bible. If they do not receive the Bible, it's not because there's a fault in the Bible. It's not because the Bible is not enough. It is because their hearts are so sinful. And that's the argument that the Lord Jesus Christ uses here in Matthew chapter 12. So the request is, Master, we would see a sign from thee. Notice the response. Verse 39. An evil and adulterous generation seeketh after a sign. 
And there shall no sign be given to it but the sign of the prophet Jonas, which is the great transliteration of the Hebrew name Jonah. Jonah. Now the words evil and adulterous are not just applied to the scribes and the Pharisees, though they are, but it's also applied to the generation, to all the people that were under their teaching and who were following them. The generation is the people of that time, those who did not follow the Lord. We know there were some in Israel who followed the Lord. We know there were the faithful, those who were truly saved and truly convinced. But it's clear that the generation into which Christ came did not wholeheartedly or largely follow after him. Remember the words in John 1 verse 11. He came on to his own and his own received him not. And the Lord says there was no extra signs to be given to this generation. They had the scripture. They had Christ standing in front of them, but their hearts were not right with God. Now, why did the Lord Jesus Christ call them an evil and adulterous generation? Because these people were the people, the Jewish people, whom the Lord had chosen to reveal his word through, his scripture through, and also among whom God had sent his son to be a savior. These were the most blessed people in the earth because they had been used of God in the provision of the word, and he sent his son into the midst of them. But they rejected the word of God, they rejected the son of God, and instead they focused on a system of laws. Believing if I obey these laws, this will bring me the favor of God. The Lord said no more signs would be given, but signs already had been given, and he brings two of them from Scripture. So here is the reminder. First of all, the sign of the prophet Jonah in verse number 40. For as Jonah was in the belly, or three days and three nights in the whale's belly, so shall the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. And the men of Nineveh shall rise in judgment with this generation and shall condemn it, because they repented at the preaching of Jonas, and behold, a greater than Jonas or Jonah is here. Now, the Lord is quoting directly from the book of Jonah, chapter 1, verse 17. It says, Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. And that is directly reference to the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, the first thing we have to notice from this passage is this that the Lord Jesus Christ accepted the biblical account of Jonah being swallowed by the great fish as accurate, as true, as fact. Do you know there are some people today and they claim that the book of Jonah is not historical fact, but it's an allegory. It's simply a story that's teaching certain lessons that we need to learn, certain spiritual lessons for the reader. But that's not the thinking of the Lord. Sadly, sometimes in churches, this thinking creeps in. The world doesn't believe it, so we need to be able to explain it, or we need to be able to explain it away. That is wrong. Should the world believe it or not believe it, we, the redeemed of the Lord, ought to fully believe the word of God. Whatever God says is true. He's holy. He's faithful. He is true. He cannot lie. Therefore, the book he has given is 100% accurate. Never be ashamed to say, I believe the Bible. Now, I know that that sounds, to the world, old-fashioned, sounds very narrow. But I'll tell you, this is the book of God. No other word has been given, but this word that God has given 
And if you place your eternity upon it, your soul upon it, by obeying the command to repent and be saved, putting your trust in Christ, you'll be saved for time and for eternity. But you reject this book, you reject the Christ of this book, and you reject the salvation that he gives. Now, the first teaching that the Lord gives in regards to Jonah is a sign that Jonah was rescued from the prospect of death in the belly of the fish. But the Lord Jesus Christ was delivered from death itself. He was delivered from death itself. Now, there are some people, when we talk about three days and three nights, it says, so shall the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. And they say, oh, there's inconsistency in the scripture. Because if you actually counted out that the Lord Jesus Christ was crucified on a Friday and buried on a Friday, and then you have Saturday and he rose on the first day of the week, the Sunday, well, that's actually only three days and two nights. So why is the scripture wrong in this part? And if it's wrong in this part, can it be wrong in other parts? The free is three days and three nights is a Jewish term. It's used in the Old Testament as well. It's used in the book of Esther. And it literally means a period of time that includes three days, whether three whole days or three part of three days. And therefore, whenever they say three days and three nights, it's talking about a period of time over three days, whether it might be a little part of the first day, a little part of the second day, a little part of the third day. That's what it means. And therefore, there is no inconsistency here. It was a Jewish idiom, which means a period of time that includes three days, either in whole or in part. So there's nothing inconsistent about the scripture at all. There may be a lack of ignorance in people reading it and not knowing the background and the culture in which it was written, but that is what it means. The second teaching is also very important because the Jews would have focused very much, historians tell us, on that lesson of Jonah being swallowed by the fish and being uh, vomited up again onto the beach. But it's the second part that the Lord focuses in on. It's the part that happens afterwards. The part whenever the Lord comes to Jonah again and tells Jonah to go to Nineveh and to preach to Nineveh and to warn that city that God is going to destroy it. And you know what happened? There was a great movement of God. There was a great turning on to the Lord in response to the preaching of Jonah. What did Jonah preach? Well, according to his book, he preached these words, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. God's judgment's coming. Your city is going to be destroyed. And the word came to the king of this message. And when he heard of the doom that was certainly coming, he said these words, Let every man and beast be covered with sackcloth and cry mightily unto God. Yea, let them turn every one from his evil way and from the violence that is in their hands. Who can tell if God will turn and repent and turn away his fierce anger? that we perish not. And God saw their works, that they turned from their evil way, and God repented of the evil that he had said he would do unto them, and did it not. And the example of the king, the ruler of that day, commanding men to repent from their sin, resulted in one of the greatest evangelical awakenings that has ever taken place. 
It's estimated, according to uh, Jonah chapter 4, that there were at least 120,000 people in the city. And we read that the city turned to God. But what does the Lord say at the end of verse 41? They repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, a greater than Jonah is here. You see, Nineveh had a prophet, but Israel had the Christ. Nineveh repented at the words of a man. Yes, they were words of God, but they were through a man. Israel largely did not repent, even though they heard the words of the Son of God. Jonah did not do any miracles, he simply preached. And the people believed. The Savior conducted multiple miracles, yet the hearts of the people of his day were largely unchanged. The people of Nineveh were brought up in a spiritual religious uh, traditions. They wouldn't have been familiar with the Old Testament. They wouldn't have had the worship of a tabernacle or a temple regarding the one true God, Jehovah. Yet they repented when they heard the word of God. The people of Israel were brought up. They knew the Old Testament from childhood. They were able to quote large portions of it. It was from their very ancestors that the scriptures came. Yet they did not repent from their sin. What's the result of this? There will be judgment and condemnation because they despised the great blessings of being in the presence of Christ, and they rejected him. Nineveh puts Israel to shame. Because Nineveh, the godless, pagan, Gentile nation, turned at the preaching of the message of Jonah. And Christ himself was standing in the midst of Israel, and they rejected him. There's another example given, and that's to do with the queen of Sheba. Verse number uh, 42. The queen of the south shall rise up in the judgment with this generation and shall condemn it. For she came from the uttermost parts of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and behold, a greater than Solomon is here. She had heard about Solomon and the blessing of God upon him. In fact, we read these words in 1 Kings 10 and 1. And when the queen of Sheba heard of the fame of Solomon concerning the name of the Lord, she came to prove him with hard questions. And he was able to answer all of those questions satisfactorily. And you know what she said? The half has not been told me. The half of the wisdom of Solomon and the blessing of God upon Solomon has not been told me. And then she went on to say these words, Blessed be the Lord thy God, which delighted in thee to set thee on the throne of Israel, because the Lord loved Israel forever. Therefore he made thee king to do judgment and justice. And once again, the Lord contrasts the Queen of Sheba with the religious rulers and the generation of his day. The Pharisees, the scribes, the people of the day in Israel, they had the word of God at hand. They knew parts of it off by heart. The Queen of Sheba had to travel over 1,200 miles to find out the truth. The people had access to the one who is wisdom himself, The queen had to hear from a man, though he was blessed of God. The people of Israel gave nothing to the Savior. 
In fact, they sought to take his life from him. The queen of Sheba, when she heard the truth and realized who God was and that God was blessing this people, gave liberally unto the Lord, as well as honoring God with her heart and with her lips. The people of Israel have been invited time and time again to turn from their sin and come to Christ for salvation. Queen of Sheba was not living in such a time. She sought out truth until she found it, and having heard the word of God and the call of God through the word, then she came to the one, the true God, and believed him. And notice what it says. A greater than Solomon is here. Nineveh believed at the teaching of Jonah. The queen of Sheba believed at the teaching of Solomon. But a greater than Jonah, a greater than Solomon is here. And once again, religious rulers would fall in death in their sin. And on the day of judgment would have Nineveh, the queen of Sheba, condemning them. Because they had greater privileges and greater blessings than Nineveh or the queen of Sheba had. Yet they rejected him. You see, there's a specific condemnation here for those who have a great advantage and opportunity yet reject Christ. And can I say that includes everybody in this meeting today who are not yet saved? It is a privilege to sit under the gospel. It is a privilege to own a Bible. It is a privilege to be in meetings. It is a privilege to know the truth of the word of God. And therefore, in hell, every gospel meeting that the sinner attended will bring torment to his soul because he sat under the truth and rejected it. Every mission, every Sunday school class, every church service that was occupied will increase the sinner's suffering in hell because they did not reject the truth in ignorance, but they rejected it with a full knowledge of the word of God. And I say to you today, you're living in a land where you can drive down the road and you can see gospel texts on billboards, signs literally by the side of the road. You can go to a gospel meeting any night of the week. There's a church in every corner. There's a Bible in your home. People have given gospel tracts into your hand. They've said, I'm praying for you. You've received invitations to meetings and missions from those who care about your soul. You've seen lives changed among your family and among your friends. You know God is real. You know the word of God is true. And yet this morning you are sitting in God's house rejecting him. I'm going to tell you something. It will be the greatest tragedy for you to die in that condition. Having been so richly blessed with gospel information, with gospel opportunity, with gospel preaching, you're doing exactly what the Pharisees and the scribes did. You're rejecting Christ. And listen to this. Rejection brings rejection. Your rejection of Christ will result in Christ's rejection of you. And that brings us to the thought of the last state of man or the last stage of man because there's a parable given by the Lord Jesus Christ here, verses 43 to 45. 
And the first thing we notice is a picture presented. Verse 43, when the unclean spirit is gone out of a man, he walketh through dry places seeking rest and findeth none. Then he saith, I will return into my house and from whence I came out and when he is come, he findeth it empty and swept and garnished. Then goeth he and taketh with himself seven other spirits more wicked than himself. And they enter in and dwell there and the last state of that man is worse than the first. Even so shall it be also unto this wicked generation. The first thing is a picture presented. It is a parable that shows the sad end of those who don't believe the gospel. This picture of a person clearing up his life by reformation, putting out the unclean. It's a picture really of someone, as it were, cleaning a house and putting out that which is unclean. And people seek to do that in their lives. And maybe you've tried to reform your life. Maybe you've tried to do these things. I'm not going to say bad words anymore. I'm not going to go to sinful places. I'm not going to engage in lies or immorality or envying and the like. You maybe even have started going to church. You've tried to clean up your life, but that's as far as some people go. God must be pleased with me because of what I don't do and because of what I do. They try and live better. That's what the scribes and the Pharisees were doing. They tried to live clean lives by not doing things, by not touching on clean things, by obeying the laws of Moses. But there's a great problem here. And the problem is you can try and clean up your life, but you're no better because the inside is not replaced with something different. And that's exactly what they were saying. They didn't fill the house with anything else. They tried to clean it up, but it was an empty shell. And the result was that while they tried to clean up the house or try to clean up the life, by the end, there was more uncleanness and more wickedness in the house. Why? Because it wasn't occupied, it wasn't empty. And that's exactly what happens with those who try to clean up their lives. Those who try to live as Christians, but they have never been saved. Those who try to do their best, but they are not trusting Christ. Cleaning up your life isn't the answer. The Bible doesn't call you to do that. Sinners are called to repent of their sin and to call on the Lord for salvation, trusting the bloodshed of Calvary as cleansing for their soul. That's the emptying. But in salvation, there's also a filling. God just doesn't take out the unclean, but God gives us his Holy Spirit. So our heart is occupied. And the wonderful news of this is that the Spirit of God comes into the heart of the Christian. He brings the Word of God to his mind. He leads us. He tells us about Christ. And where the Holy Spirit is, then no unclean spirit can come in and abide. So what is this parable telling us? It's telling us this. If all you're trying to do is clean up your life, then the last state of your life is going to be worse than the first. At the end of your life, you're going to be in much more trouble than you were at the start when you tried to clean up your life. Because you're going to have a greater record of sin when you die. You're going to die with a hardened heart. You're going to be in more strife and trouble than you ever were before. And that's exactly what the Lord said. Even so shall it be also unto this generation. 
There are people in hell today who stood before the Lord as he said these words. They were trying to clean up their lives. They were warned that that was not enough because their their lives at the end would be worse. But praise God for the Christian who is able to say, when I die, my last state, the end of my life is going to be good. It's going to be better. It's going to be blessed. And Paul said, for me to live is Christ, but to die is gain. And that's why the Christian can face the end of their life knowing it will be glory for me. Because not only has the Lord dealt with the uncleanness and the sin of the life, but the Spirit of God dwells within. And I say to you, and I warn you, dear unsaved person, if all you're depending upon today is a good life, if all you're depending upon today is a good life, you're going to die in your sin. You need more than a good life. You need the life of Christ, his righteousness imputed to you, his blood to cleanse you, his spirit to fill you. And we come to our last thought this morning, and it says, while he yet talked to the people, verse 46, behold, his mother and his brethren stood without desiring to speak with him. Then one said unto him, behold, thy mother and thy brethren stand without desiring to speak to thee. But he answered and said unto him that told him, Who is my mother and who are my brethren? And he stretched forth his hand toward his disciples and said, Behold my mother and my brethren. For whosoever shall do the will of my Father which is in heaven, the same is my brother, my sister, and mother. Three simple thoughts. First of all, the Lord was not being careless about his physical family. This wasn't the Lord dismissing Mary and his brothers, sisters. The Lord Jesus Christ later on in the book of Matthew actually quoted the commandment, honor thy father and thy mother. And he that curseth father or mother, let him die. And he did that in response to the behavior of the Pharisees. For they neglected to obey this command. We know that some of the siblings of Christ did believe after his resurrection. And we know he is not dismissing the blessing and responsibilities of the physical family. Throughout his whole life, there was no absence of care. And there was certainly no lack of love toward his mother, especially at the cross. He made sure that she had the best of care. Before he died, rose again and ascended to heaven. So this is not the Lord dismissing his family. And a true Christian doesn't do that. Secondly, The Lord was taking an opportunity to speak about the spiritual family of God. What he was teaching is this. There is a bond that is closer than physical family. And that's a spiritual. Whenever we are united to the Lord Jesus Christ. What did the Lord do? He pointed toward his disciples. Now who were they? They were a bunch of men who several times in scripture. Failed. Sinned fell. But the Lord stretched forth his hand and said, behold, my mother and my brethren. He said, these are my family. We're reminded in scripture, he is not ashamed to call us brethren. 
And like those disciples, we have many faults and many failures, and at times even bring shame to the name of the Lord and the cause of Christ. But he has loved us with an everlasting love. He has saved us for his glory. He will not fail and has promised to bring us home and present us faultless before his Father with exceeding joy. And what the Lord does is say, look, there are two types of people here. There are those who are in my family, those who are not in my family. And here's the distinguishing mark. Verse number 50. Whosoever shall do the will of my Father which is in heaven, the same is my brother and sister and mother. The scribes and the Pharisees were so sure that they were close to God because of the lives that they lived. But the Savior teaches the distinguishing mark of the family of God. Or let's put it another way. How do you know someone's a born-again Christian? How do you know someone is truly saved, a follower of Christ? Verse 50, Whosoever shall do the will of my Father which is in heaven. Those who live in obedience to the Bible. Now, three thoughts as we close. Number one, no one can obey the will of God unless they're first saved. So the Lord is not saying, if you obey the laws of Scripture, you'll be regarded as part of the family of God. You have, first of all, to be saved. Because even the righteousnesses, the good things of the the sinner are as filthy rags in the sight of God. So this is obviously speaking about those who have repented of their sin and trusted in Christ. Secondly, this should be the mark of Christian people that they're living in obedience to the Bible. Can I say to you, one of the greatest hindrances in the work of God and the church of Jesus Christ in the cause of Christ is Christians who disobey the word of God. Devil doesn't have to do anything other than sit back and enjoy it. You harm the cause of Christ. It should be our greatest joy, desire, and glory to live for Christ. But notice this. The gospel and the offer of salvation is for all people in all places, which is indicated by the word, whosoever. Whosoever. Because to those scribes and those Pharisees, oh yes, they believed that the Gentile people could be saved or brought into the family of God as long as they came and obeyed the Jewish traditions. No, the Lord says, whosoever doeth the will of my Father, whosoever repents of their sin, whosoever calls on the Lord for salvation, whosoever obeys the word of God and shows their saved, evidenced by their works, not saved because of their works, but saved and that's evidenced by their works, that's indicated in the word whosoever. And therefore, we close this meeting today saying, you can be saved. Whosoever in this meeting calls on the Lord can be saved. You can be a member of the family of God. You can live a life that brings glory and honor to your creator. You can live your life knowing that the moment you die, it's absent from the body and present with the Lord. You'll be in the presence of Jesus. Not because you tried your best, not because you lived a good life, but because as a sinner, you called upon the name of the Lord. Because as a sinner, you trusted in the finished work of Christ. That's your hope. That's your plea. And I ask you as we close, where will you be in eternity?
When you close your eyes in death, where will you be? Should it be today, where would you be? There's only one of two places. For the sinner, it's hell. With the blessings of your life condemning you and tormenting you eternally. But for the saved, it's heaven. Don't leave here today without knowing for sure you're saved. Don't leave here without today knowing it is well with your soul. May the Lord give you grace to call upon him. As we still, as we close our eyes in prayer, just bringing this time to a close, maybe there's someone I've been speaking to and you've heard the voice of the Lord and you've been trying to live a clean life, hoping that's enough, hoping it gives you peace, hoping it gives you some help getting to heaven. Let me tell you, that is not the answer. Your last state, your end, will be worse than now. You need Christ. Only he can save. Only he can transform. Only he can give true life. And if you're not saved today, I urge you to come to him. To call upon him for salvation and know the joy that trusting Christ brings. And I challenge every believer, including myself, are we known as those who do the will of the Father which is in heaven? Are we walking in the ways of God and the word of God? Because that's the greatest testimony. May God give us grace. Heavenly Father, we thank thee for the study of thy word. Lord, we acknowledge we have been a richly blessed generation. Lord, gospel preaching on every hand, access to the scriptures and to gospel literature. Lord, we sat in so many meetings. And there may be some who in this gathering have to say, in spite of the blessings, I'm not saved. In spite of the many, many, many hours I sat under teaching, I'm still rejecting Christ. Lord, we pray that that will trouble the soul today. That there be no rest or peace given on this thy day until that dear sinner falls on their knees and confesses her sin and calls on the Lord for reality in their life. Oh, Lord, save, we pray today. May this day, people in this congregation become members of the family of God. Honor thy word, we pray. Build thy church and help us as God's people to live according to thy word. Bless those who remain as we gather around the Lord's table. May what we say and do bring glory to our Saviour, for in his name we pray. Amen and amen. We're closing with him 591, and if you're able to remain, then please do so. Uh, come downstairs and we'll gather for the Lord's table. If you have to go, then uh, you may leave during this hymn. Do you remember the service this evening? Please come back again as we meet around the word of God. Mm-hmm.